Thanks very much again to John and Edward and Fred and Christopher for leading the music this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Is everybody here warm enough? Anybody here too warm? Yeah, good. No, I'm not the only one then. Okay. I hope that's okay. Acts chapter 20, we're going to read from verse 17 down to verse number 38. I'm going to invite you to stand as you find your place in God's word and then give attention to the words of the one living and true God from Acts, 17, verses, Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of, my, of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to, solemnly, sorry, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood." I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, 
And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, again, we ask you, O God, for words, words that would communicate the message of the word of God to the hearts of the people of God. Father, we ask you for utterance and for boldness. Father, we ask you for grace to season those words and love to drive them. Father, we pray again that you would save the lost through the preaching of the word of God. You would sanctify the saints, encourage those who are discouraged and downhearted. Father, bring comfort to those who are afflicted. And Father, we pray also that you would bring affliction to those who are comforted through the preaching of the word of God. We ask you, O God, for these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. So Luke recorded Paul's farewell speech at the Holy Spirit's inspiration to show us that the apostles, even though they were dying off, not to be replaced, God was seeing to it that the subsequent generation of elders and shepherds were being trained and prepared for what lay ahead. God prepares his elders and shepherds by giving them, giving us examples to be repeated, instructions to be followed, and warnings to be heeded. God is always at work in the process of discipleship. Older, mature, godly believers teaching and training and setting examples for the next generation of elders and shepherds and leaders in the church. The examples, instructions, and warnings that Paul gives are timeless. Every elder shepherd in every generation needs to hear Paul's heartfelt words to these Ephesian elders. But this passage is not merely for formal recognized elders in the church. Paul's words are for husbands to shepherd their wives. They're for wives so they can shepherd their children. They're for parents to shepherd children, wives to shepherd their husbands. They're for all believers because we are all involved in the shepherding process of those who are around us. For the church, these words of Paul provide a standard to measure prospective elders in the church. And by the way, you don't start shepherding a church after you become an elder and a shepherd. You start shepherding people in the church as soon as you're able to. And what the church simply does is we recognize what God is already doing in that man's life by making him and recognizing him as an elder. But beloved, we must take heed to the words we see in front of us because examples observed but not followed are useless to the observer. Simply knowing what the Bible teaches is not the point. Truth that's known but not exercised simply becomes evidence against us at the judgment. The point is to learn the truth and put it into action. So brothers and sisters in Christ, brother elders, we must be striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to put these things we're talking about into practice, lest we stand under God's discipline for failing to do what we know to be right and pleasing to him. James said it in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, he said, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And he said later that we're effectual doers will be blessed in what he does. 
There is indeed blessing for obedience to the word of God. And there is discipline for disobedience. So one of the things I want to keep driving home is it's not just about knowing what shepherds do. It's actually about putting it to work, putting it to use. And even though we've taken, we will take by the end of this four messages in this passage, you say, man, you're sure belaboring this one point, this one passage. And the reason why is because I'm being so challenged and so convicted in my own life about what it means to be an elder, to shepherd God's people. And we all are involved in shepherding God's people. So just to recap what we've already observed from Paul's farewell speech, firstly, shepherds are to set godly examples, examples of speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Secondly, shepherds are to serve the Lord, the Lord who makes elders and shepherds in verse 28. We're to serve the Lord with submission from verses 22 and 23. We're to serve him in self-denial from verse 24. And in verses 18 and 19, we are to serve the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials. We haven't talked about the trials, but when we look at the next couple of chapters to the end of Paul's story, all you see is trials as he's arrested and imprisoned and all the different things that happen to the end of his life. So we'll look at that in that section of the text, the book of Acts. The last two weeks messages have dealt very much with the shepherd's heart, serving the Lord in submission and self-denial and humility and tears. And the reason that was so important is because if the heart attitude is not right before the Lord, nothing else will be. And God is always more concerned with our heart attitude in serving than in what we practically do as we serve him. The heart is absolutely critical. And it's got to start there. But this week's and next week's messages deal more with the the how of shepherding God's church. And so we want to see, thirdly, that shepherds serve the church. You should have had a little pink uh, note in that bulletin there. If you've got a green one, uh, it'll be slightly different. I printed the green ones last night, re-edited my sermon, and reprinted them in print this morning. So if you've got a green one, it'll be close, but not quite. So the pink one's the one you want to have. Shepherds serve the church. Our primary object of service is always our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states repeatedly that he is an apostle of Christ, not of the church so much. And we serve the Lord in the context of our local church. Elders and shepherds serve the Lord in the context of the church. Husbands and fathers, wives, mothers, believers, all of us, we shepherd each other in service to the Lord in the context of his church. And our shepherding in those personal relationships benefits the whole church. Whatever area of service that we're involved in and committed to, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we serve, not simply the people of this church. And you can already think about all the implications of that. Our attitude matters. Our joy in service matters. The way we serve, what we serve matters critically because we are serving the Lord in all that we do. And firstly, shepherds serve the church in continual labor. If you look at your Bible again in verses 34 and 35, you'll see Paul says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Paul is talking about his labor of tent making, working a job to supply his temporal living needs and his friends' needs. And quite possibly, there were needs of those in the Ephesian church that he was supplying for them as well. It talks about the weak there and giving, not receiving. So shepherds are to labor when necessary. And I don't mean that shepherds only label a little bit. You all know the running joke. Pastors only work 45 minutes a week from now until about quarter to 12, and then I'm done for the week, right? No. (laughs) And I don't mean laboring when necessary like that. What I mean is we labor when necessary to provide for our own needs. And sometimes in ministry, that's required. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 7 to 9, Paul and his friends, they tell the Thessalonians that they labored as they proclaimed the gospel to those Thessalonian people. In Acts 18 and verse 3 and verse 5, Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, that Paul worked with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, tent making in order to provide for his needs as he preached the gospel. But notice, if you go to those verses, once Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul devoted himself to the word. In Acts 20, verse 34, in Ephesus, Paul was involved in some form of tent making. He labored when necessary to provide for his own physical needs and living. It's often necessary, as I mentioned, in the course of ministry to do some form of tent making. I did it for 20 plus years, working through the week as a carpenter and a cabinet maker, then preaching in our home church or traveling to preach in other churches. But the problem is, Some have taken this idea of tent-making way beyond its biblical teaching to say that pastors should never receive a salary or financial support, but should always be tent-making. And that is not what Paul and the whole council of Scripture teaches. Paul, writing to Timothy, who, by the way, is a pastor and elder at Ephesus, Paul quotes both Moses and Jesus to make his point that elders who labor in the word and doctrine are to be financially supported. This is what he says. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. If you flip open your Bible and look at those passages, you'll see... You should not muzzle an ox while treading the grain is in quotation marks. You should also see, if your Bible is uh, edited well, that the labor is worthy of his wages is also in quotation marks. He's quoting two people, Moses and Jesus. The laborer worthy of his wages is Jesus' words from Matthew 10, verse 10, and Luke 10, verse 7. There's two reasons why they're to be financially supported. Number one, so elders and pastors can be set free from the need to labor in the business and marketplace, and so they can devote himself or themselves entirely to prayer and the ministry of the word. Tent-making ministry is, when necessary, to provide for the personal living needs, but it's not to be the ongoing practice of the church. The notion that ministers are to support themselves while laboring in the word and doctrine is the exception. It is not the rule. Now, some of you know my background, where I came from. I came from a lovely, gospel-loving, Christ-loving, God-serving people that believed like that. 
And sadly, they burnt out one man after another, after another, after another, after another. It's not what the Bible teaches. Paul labored when necessary to supply his needs. He also labored in ministry. Shepherds are to labor in shepherding. This role of or the, the title of elder, pastor, it's not a title for an office you sit in and do nothing. Although you might look at me in there and think that's pretty much what you're doing. No, it's not all the time. It's a work. Paul writes to Timothy and he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. In other words, eldering and shepherding God's people is an active work to be involved in. And it is hard work. And God expects us as those who shepherd his sheep to work hard in the shepherding of God's sheep. It's not a call to a lazy lifestyle. Always drinking coffee and reading books. Okay, I, do, I admit it. I do drink coffee and I do read books. But that's not all we do. It's hard work. And we're expected to work hard. And Paul said that great example, didn't he? He continually labored in his serving the Lord. In Ephesus, Paul reasoned daily from the hall of Tyrannus all through his missionary journeys. Paul was continually laboring to preach the gospel, to teach the truth, to reason for, argue for, present, and defend the gospel. That, brother, elders, and shepherds, is to be our example, our goal to aim at. This is not a call to a lazy lifestyle. It's a call to a busy working lifestyle. It's a call to a lifestyle that is literally seven days a week. Yes, we do take a day off. That's biblical. But we're also on call. That's also biblical. We're to follow Paul and the, Paul's example and the infinitely greater example of Christ laboring, working hard in a variety of ways to serve the Lord in his church. We'll see Jesus' example towards the end of the service. But I need to add one more <clears throat> very necessary point here. Elders and shepherds are not to labor in everything themselves. That's the other mistake we make. I make it all the time. Shepherds are not to labor in everything. Remember back to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In that set of circumstances, the 12 apostles were serving as elders and shepherds in the Jerusalem church. And the needs of 5,000 plus congregation could not possibly be met by 12 men. But notice what they say. They say it's not desirable. And some of your translations will say it's not right. That's a good translation. It's not right that the word of God be neglected to serve tables. Something in that circumstance had to give. But it must not be the study, the preaching, the teaching of the word of God and prayer. They make the point that elders must devote themselves to the word and to prayer. And beloved, the application we already know and we understand it. The work of the church of Jesus Christ cannot be done by a few. 
God put us together as a body. God put us together as ministers, all of us. One of the roles and functions of pastors and elders in the church is to train up and equip the saints for the work of ministry. So that all of us serve each other. The church, listen, is not a supermarket where we come to get what we want or what we need and then leave. It is not, nor was it ever designed to be a one, two, three, four man ministry where everybody else takes and forgive. It is to be a church serving together, serving the Lord in the context of each other's lives. Shepherds were to serve the Lord in continual labor, laboring when necessary to supply certain needs, laboring to shepherd to the church, but not laboring in everything. Brothers and sisters, there is a work to be done in this church. There's lots to be done in this church. You can't let it drop down on five or six people. That's not how God designed his church. He designed us to work together. Secondly, the shepherds are church. Sorry, let's try it again in English. Secondly, the shepherds are to serve the church in word ministry. And Paul set a powerful example for how we to serve the church in the ministry of the word of God. In verse 21, Paul was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24, Paul said he did not consider his life of any account as dear to himself, but that he may finish his course and the ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus to, set, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 25, he says he preached the kingdom of God among them. Testifying and preaching the gospel is necessary to make disciples. Testifying and preaching the gospel is also necessary to grow disciples. The gospel is to be proclaimed inside and outside the church. Everybody is to hear the message. The gospel is necessary for every part of life as we grow in Christian maturity. And Paul preached the gospel. Notice what he included. In verse 25, he preached the kingdom of God. If you go back a couple of weeks, about a month ago, we did a long message on the kingdom of God and what it means. Paul was declaring God's authority as sovereign king and creator and redeemer and judge to whom we must all give an account who will judge us all at the end. He, God, is the righteous, holy God who calls all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And that call... That gospel call comes on the authority of the living God himself. He has the right to call us to repentance because he is the sovereign king. Notice in verse 24, he's testifying to the grace of God. Isn't that beautiful how those two work together? The authority and sovereignty of God to call us to repentance and belief and the grace of God at the very same time that supplies what we could not supply for ourselves. The wonderful truth that God, by his grace, his kindness, his compassion for us, who could not and would not help ourselves, he sent Jesus Christ to save us. For we are saved by grace, God's grace, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, those great five solas of the the gospel. 
Notice in verse 21, he's testifying of repentance towards God. So having proclaimed the kingdom of God, God's sovereign rule and reign, and the grace of God in salvation, he testifies of repentance towards God, the call, the command to turn away from soul-damning sin that we love and turn towards God in grief over our sin, turning away from the practice of it. Brothers and sisters, the gospel demands These elements, the authority of God, the grace of God, the repentance that we must exercise towards God. And finally, in verse 21, the faith in God for salvation. He called men and women to trust God as our only hope of salvation from his own wrath against us. Take a time out for 20 seconds. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I beg you. Listen, he is God most high. He is not amused or mildly annoyed by your sin. He is furiously enraged at it. But in grace, in kindness, in compassion toward us, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer and die on a cross for you. And he calls you to repent, to turn away from your sin and trust in him, for he is your only hope for salvation. And brothers and sisters, the day is coming and the judgment day is coming, looming closer and closer every day. Notice also in verse 21, Paul testifies to all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. Although Paul recognized his calling as an apostle to Gentiles, he spared no opportunity to preach the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And his pattern consistently was to go to a place, find a synagogue, find where the Jews were, meet with them, present the gospel to them, building on their their foundation of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And then from there, he would go out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He made it his, his goal to preach the gospel wherever he went to be all things to all men, as he says elsewhere. And brother, elders, shepherds, whether you're a formal shepherd or a mom with kids at home, it is our responsibility to declare and to communicate the gospel to those with whom we have an influence. It starts with mums. And little Bible story books simply telling their kids the story of the gospel. My earliest memory, so my, when I was living in Barrick at, I would have been four or five years of age, my dad explained the gospel, and I have one image burned into my mind, never get rid of it. Him sitting there, and his hand, he had his finger like that, and he was explaining to me they put nails in Jesus' hand. That, that image is stuck in my mind. That's where it begins. Husbands, fathers, all of us. It is our responsibility as we shepherd those around us to preach and proclaim and declare the gospel that they might be saved. Secondly, he was declaring the profitable. Notice in Acts 20 and verse 20, Paul did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public and from house to house. Now, in that first century context, public, he says there, almost certainly meant the lecture hall of Tyrannus, Uh, where both Christians and non-Christians were gathered to hear, and Paul stood up there and taught and preached the gospel, and both heard. House to house almost certainly means house church to house church. Little groups, little gatherings, like small groups of Christians, mostly Christians, gathered together, and Paul set an example of preaching and teaching what was profitable in both areas. 
In our 21st century context, public would relate to the corporate gathering of the church where there are Christians gathered together for worship with non-Christians almost certainly present with us. I'm absolutely convinced what the Scriptures teaches teaches us that there are non-believers, non-Christians here this morning sitting here. Some of you may have already fooled yourself into thinking that you're really truly a believer, but you're not. You need to examine your own heart to be sure you're in the faith and pay attention to what's being said, what's being read from the Scriptures. From house to house would relate to our small groups, our life groups. We gather together in small groups, the ladies in some groups and the guys in some groups, and in some groups it's mixed, some groups it's old, some groups it's young, but we're all gathered in little small groups, and the goal there is to teach and preach what is profitable to that group. Meaning that we sometimes we accommodate that message to those we're speaking to. To little ones, we don't give a great long discourse on theology and the nature and attributes of God to a little three-year-old. We simply explain that God loves them. And God is, we give simple explanations. Eventually we'll get there and explain all of that, but we start with what they can understand. In older adult groups, we bring the message. We can go to a deeper, more solid, more rich theology and explain, expound it for the growth of the church. It's what's profitable. And elders and shepherds were to follow Paul's example of profitable ministry, both in the public gathering of God's people for worship and in smaller groups gathered within the church. Shepherds are to declare and to teach what is profitable. What does that mean? How do we know what is profitable and what's not? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly the source of all that is profitable for all mankind is the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says, All Scripture is inspired by God and, who knows it? Profitable, that's it. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Again, that letter was written to the Ephesian elder named Timothy. So what we must... Sorry, Sorry. So what must we do to ensure that our ministry is profitable? He tells us in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, we must be diligent or study to present ourselves approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Profitable ministry requires diligent study. Many years ago when I really wanted to become a preacher, I wanted to serve the Lord in that, uh, we lived in the lower mainland of Vancouver, and there was a Bible school called Trinity Western University, I think. And they had a theology uh, library. So I got in my little truck and gumbooted out there and went looking amongst these stacks of books, which for a, a secular, mostly secular university, had a huge section. And I pulled out a book on preaching, and the first thing I read was, the call to preach is a call to prepare or a call to study. And profitable ministry requires diligent study. Remember Ezra, the scribe in the Old Testament? He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, for he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's profitable ministry requires diligent study. You cannot get around that. There's a... Uh, so. Cindy gave, us, gave me the book, uh, Lectures to My Students, this morning. Uh, I, I've had a copy, but that's okay. I'm going to give it to somebody else. In that little book, he talks, Spurgeon talks in his usual comical way about the minister who told, that, uh, told Spurgeon one day, 
I think nothing of standing up and opening the word of God and just proclaiming whatever comes to mind. And Spurgeon's comment back to him was, you think nothing of it, and just so you know, your congregation doesn't think much of it either. So this poor guy was thinking he would just stand up and preach whatever came to mind. No, that's not biblical at all. You say, what about that verse that says the Holy Spirit will give you to say in that hour what you need? Yes, if you look at the context, he's talking about persecution and, and, and suffering. Like Richard Wormbrand, I was watching the movie last night. Uh, if you haven't watched a very sobering movie on suffering for the faith, watch Tortured for Christ. You can get on YouTube for free. And he was being beaten. They had set him up on this rack with his feet exposed. And they he were beating him with rods on the soles of his feet. He wrote later, there are not words in, the la- in language to describe the pain that he experienced as they beat him. And in those moments, God gave him the words to say as he faithfully, steadfastly held firm to his faith in Christ despite the shocking pain that he was enduring. But brothers and sisters, shepherds, those of us who are called to minister to the word of God, to the people of God, in whatever context God puts us, that first call is a call to diligent study. Profitable ministry requires diligent study. It also requires understanding how God's word fits together. 66 books written by 40 authors over a thousand years. Multiple threads woven together into one great tapestry. One coherent, cohesive revelation, as Paul says in Romans 1, concerning the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, profitable ministry presents Christ. This world we're living in is looking for solutions to problems, are they not? Don't believe me? Walk into any bookstore and look at the self-help section. You can find self-help on things that nobody needs help in, right? It's just books written to unending books, And the greatest solution we have to all mankind's problems, including the problem of sin, is Christ, and it's in the Word of God. He is the source of all, the solution to every problem. He is a source of indescribable, unending joy to every heart. He is the lover and savior of our souls. He is the subject and content of all profitable ministry. It all comes back to Christ. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. So how do we do profitable ministry? 2 Timothy 3.16 to 4 verse 2 provides the answer. Every pastor knows this passage. We teach the scriptures. We reprove with scripture. We correct with scripture. We train for righteousness with scripture. We preach the word ready in season and out of season. We reprove, we rebuke, we exhort all with great patience and instruction. We do it so that conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment comes by the Holy Spirit. Repentance and faith and joy increases and sin and disobedience decreases. We do profitable ministry when we accurately handle the word of truth, meaning... 
We deliver the word so that everyone receives a portion that is fitting and appropriate to their situation and needs. And that's impossible without the Holy Spirit. That's why I prayed this morning for the anointing, for the unction. What, what I, I mean, do I mean something charismatic or Pentecostal? No. What I mean is the great influence of the Holy Spirit in my heart and my life as I preach and in your heart as you listen, that God the Holy Spirit would communicate the truth of Scripture to your heart in a way no human could ever even conceive of it. It's profitable if it brings salvation and true growth in sanctification and godliness and holiness and Christ-likeness. It's profitable even if the listener ignores every word we say. How, how could that be profitable? It's profitable so long as what we say is God's word because the Bible promises that he will not allow his word to return void. For then he, almighty God, will not hold the shepherd accountable so long as he discharges his responsibility to preach the word of God to the people of God. But God will certainly hold the sheep, the listener, accountable for what they did with what they received. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Stand before the living God and hear, I sent Jack to tell you that. Why didn't you listen? Elders and shepherds, we declare and teach anything that is profitable to the church, and it comes from Scripture, and it concerns Christ. Husbands and wives, declare anything that is profitable to your beloved spouse. Fathers and mothers declare and teach and instruct with Scripture, for surely it is profitable to them. Proverbs, I picked up again the other day, I haven't read it for a while. Started reading through it, one chapter by the date of the, the month. Man, that's good stuff. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Paul Washer did a monstrous series of studies in Proverbs aimed at grade school kids. The thing they discovered after the fact was how, as they were producing, putting them online, I think I might have told you this, uh, the parents were watching it more than the kids were because they were getting more out of it. Proverbs is a great way to communicate God's truth about Christ to kids, and we're responsible to communicate what is profitable to our families. Beloved, as we shepherd one another, the only powerful and effective way is through calling each other to notice to observe, to heed, and to obey Scripture. Knowing what it means and not doing what it says is a recipe for disaster. But beloved, i got to add this. Declare it seasoned with much grace. Declare it moved and motivated by love. I, there was a famous preacher, I can't remember his name, but... If you go, when we go to England, I'm going to figure out who it was and go see the place because apparently it's still there. You can go into his study, and on the floor of his study, beside where his desk used to be, there's two dish spots worn into the hardwood flooring of the floor. And apparently he would get down on his knees, and as he would prepare, he would pray and weep. And years and years and years and years of praying and weeping over his church pleading with God for their salvation, for their growth, had worn two spots where his knees dug into the hardwood floor week after week after week after week. He loved his flock. 
And brothers and sisters, when we declare what is profitable, what we, when we're shepherding God's sheep, we do it in love for God and love for his people. And again, the heart is absolutely critical in all this. Thirdly, we, dis- we declare all scripture. Notice what he says in verses 26 and 27. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It is preaching the whole truth of God, the much-loved truths and the very difficult truths. It is to declare forgiveness and unforgiveness. It's to declare heaven and hell, justification and damnation. It's to declare glorification and damnation. It's to declare blessings of obedience and discipline for disobedience. It is to preach and call sin what it is, sin. It is to promise believers the heights of joy in knowing God and to warn unbelievers of unceasing misery apart from knowing God. That's profitable ministry. That's declaring the whole counsel of God. One of the great joys, mixed blessing joys in some ways, in preaching through whole books consistently, one after the other, passage after passage. I did that the first time in 1 Corinthians. Man, that was a tough book. You hit some passage in there, and there are some difficult topics that you've got to deal with. That's why we do it, by the way. So we cover all the truths of Scripture. So I don't get to come along and go, oh, just skip that chapter and come on to the next one. No, I've got to work my way through that chapter and preach what's difficult, what might be misunderstood, what might earn me a little bit of response, <laughs> hard response sometimes. The reality is, brothers and sisters in Christ, we preach the whole counsel of God, all that it says, good stuff and hard stuff, because it's all profitable. Notice what Paul says also. He says, um, I lost the worst. There it is. Pardon me. There we go. He says... I testify to you this day, verse 26, that I am innocent of the blood of all. What did he mean? And I'm almost certain that what Paul is doing is he is alluding to the words of a prophet named Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, in verse chapter 33, verses 2 to 6, he records God's words saying, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming and blows the trumpet and warns the people, and if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and the sword comes and take him, His blood shall be upon his own head. The watchman's done his job and announced the warning, but they haven't listened. He continues in verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Paul is solemnly testifying that he's no longer accountable to the Lord for the Ephesians, for he has declared the whole counsel of God to them. If they refuse his message refuse his warnings in his ministry, they will give an account for it. He has not left them unequipped, unprepared, and unwarned. He has made known to them the whole counsel of God and preached the whole message of the Bible to them. And we're going to look at that warning next week. But brothers and sisters, listen, there's a distinct warning we can and we must take from this. 
If the elders and shepherds see a danger approaching and do not warn the church, they will bear some accountability before the Lord because we are called to watch over the sheep and to be on the alert. That's a serious charge for an elder to be found napping when on guard duty. It's our responsibility, brothers and sisters, to watch over. Husbands and fathers, as you look at your family, it's your responsibility to watch over them as you shepherd them. Elders, it's our responsibility over the church. Parents, it's our responsibility over our kids to watch over. We see them heading in a direction that's a wrong one. We call them back to the scriptures and we gently and firmly shepherd them in the right way. If we watch and go, oh, I hope they don't, and don't do anything, we bear the responsibility. Paul set an excellent example all through Acts, and you read his letters, and he writes about the things he said and did amongst the churches. He set an excellent example for how we must shepherd God's church through the ministry of God's word to God's people, but even greater infinitely greater than Paul's example is, of course, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. His first recorded words in the first gospel written were words of preaching. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching the people. In verse 38, Jesus said to his disciples the next morning after all those people had come to the door of the house of Peter and he'd worked late in the night healing them all. He got up early in the morning, went off to a distant place there to pray with his father. And disciples came to get him. Hey, Lord, we got so many more to heal. There's a whole group waiting. You know what Jesus said? Well, let's get busy. Let's Let's go do heal. No, he didn't say that. He said... In Mark 1, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In Matthew 4, verse 23, the Bible says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was busy, laboring in the word and doctrine, preaching and teaching and speaking in parables and figures of speech to bear witness to the truth to anybody that would listen, to all those he came in contact with at all costs. In John 18, 37, during the trial for his very life, Jesus' answer to Pilate was this, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Elders and shepherds, We serve the Lord and his church in continual labor. We serve the Lord in the context of the church, in word ministry, preaching the gospel, declaring what is profitable, declaring all scripture. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, the message is the same for all of us. Young believer, you have a sphere of influence I heard a story that uh, Spurgeon, when he was a little boy, used to uh, go into the fields and preach to the cows. And his siblings would listen. Apparently, he, got, he, he had a mind like nothing else, as most of you know. And he used to memorize the pastor's, spur, the pastor's sermons. And he'd get his brothers and sisters together, and he would repeat the sermon almost word for word. And they were worried that the pastor would take offense 
And the pastor sort of crept in nearby where he could hear young Charlie up on a stump preaching to his brothers and sisters. And the pastor was moved because Charlie was doing a better job of it than he was. (laughs) Young people, you have a sphere of influence. You are, there are people around you that you are shepherding. They're watching your example. You have opportunities to preach the gospel, to declare what is profitable to them, to call them to remember scripture. It's not just the old guy's job. And brothers and sisters, take note. Old guys are getting older. And one day... This generation that's staying in the pulpit now will be gone, and the next generation will be stepping up to take their place. We need young men and young women to be diligently studying the Word of God that they might shepherd the next group. Paul was leaving. You'll never see me again. I'm gone. This is my last chance to say anything to you. I've got you here, and this is what I want you to know. And he gave them those words because he knew he wouldn't be back to see them, that the church must carry on. And he left them all those instructions. Next generation, there's coming a day when we'll be gone, and it will fall on you, if the Lord Jesus be not returned, to pick up the baton, to pick up the word of God, to study it and to proclaim it and declare its truths to another whole generation of people. Moving on. Last point. Thirdly, shepherds serve Christ's purchased church. I wanted us to finish with our eyes firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I was going to start with this, but I thought the end would be better. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Elders and shepherds, we are to care for the church. It's not our church. It is God's church. I hear it said in pastor circles, well, that's, you know, John's church, and, you know, that's MacArthur's church, and, you know, that's uh, Roddy's church, that's Nelson's church. No, it's not. We don't own any of this. This is not our church. It is ours in the sense that we belong here and we're here to serve, but the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's church. And elders and shepherds, we're charged with the very serious role of shepherding his church on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is its great shepherd, who laid down his life for it. We're to lead his church in paths of righteousness for the sake of Christ's glory. We're to feed his church with the solid bread of life, which is Christ given for them. We're to restore his church with soul-satisfying reality of God in the person of Christ. We're to rest the church in the assurance of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We're to water the church from the source and fountain of living water, which is Christ himself. We're to walk with this church through the lonely valleys of shadowy places, being with them, shepherding them, and comforting them, and encouraging and caring for them. We are shepherding his church. And just as surely as a young man who has fallen in love with a young lady and betrothed her to himself cares very much what happens to her, I assure you from the authority of Scripture, God cares very much how we treat his church. 
And I'm telling you, we will stand before God and we will give an account. And if you think that doesn't scare me, it does, right down in my socks. We are shepherding his church. It's his by sovereign election of God. It is his by adoption. We are God's family. He has adopted sons and daughters. It is his because we're betrothed to Christ. We are his bride waiting for his coming. It's his church because we are the body of Christ, joined to Christ as body is joined to the head. It is his because he purchased it. He purchased us. Listen to what Peter says. He says, brothers, or sorry, brothers and sisters, remember this, quote, we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of us who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and our hope are in God. This is his church that we are shepherding. When you look at that person across the table and you're sharing the scriptures with them, remember this, Jesus died for them. Be careful. When we're handling the sheep, sometimes roughly, watch out. Jesus died for that sheep. And I'm, I'm not saying that to convict you. I'm saying that to convict me. Watch out. It is God's church. He called us to shepherd that church. The Lord Jesus Christ left the heights of glory. Born of a virgin. Living in sinless, spotless, unblemished, perfect obedience to his father and the law. Giving himself to suffer and die for our offenses against God in our place on our cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and he was raised for our justification. And he now calls all of us to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And as we believe, we are born again into the church of the living God. And God, the Lord Jesus Christ, The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep has raised up shepherds to care for you and watch over over us. I'm a sheep too, you know. So where do you stand before God this morning? How is your relationship with your wife or your husband or your kids? How is your relationship with those around you amongst whom God has put you wherever he's put you? to shepherd those around you. How are you doing? Maybe this is a day when we resolve as a church to go back to what the scripture clearly teaches about shepherding God's church and shepherding God's sheep. And we renew that commitment, that resolve, that we will teach and preach the gospel. We will bring whatever is profitable. We will teach the whole counsel of God. We will labor, work hard, to see them grow in the Lord. A few moments, we're going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to remember the Lord. As you pick up that little piece of bread in your hands and you're about to partake of it, give thought to the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. 
give thought to the fact that Christ came and died for his church. Give thought to the fact that you have been saved through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take that little piece of bread and remember him who did that for you. He gave his all for the sake of his sheep. And he calls us to come along behind him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him and do the same for his sheep. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to give thanks for the bread, and the guys will come and distribute it. Actually, Wes, do you want to give thanks for the bread? Thank you for the